Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 84, The Bold Falcon. Today, we wrap up the reign of Amunhotep II, King of Egypt. After more than two decades in power, Amunhotep has created a complicated legacy. We explore his family, including some strange political arrangements, and the big question. Was the reign of this pharaoh a good one? Today's episode is brought to you by everyone who donated to the Syrian Tales fundraiser. Thanks to your efforts, we donated 2,490 US dollars, far beyond my initial hopes. Thank you so much everyone. May Ray, in his benevolence, spread his glory to you. The year was 1424 BCE. It was regnal year 20 in the reign of Akkeperure Amunhotep II, the Horus Falcon, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Amunhotep, lord of the Nile, was 38 years old, and after two decades of rule and governing, he was enjoying an era of peace. The second decade of Amunhotep's reign passed without major incident. His wars were finished, his officials were comfortable in their positions, and his borders were secure. In fact, Amunhotep claims to have been riding high on a wave of international prestige. According to the king, the second decade witnessed the foreign powers of the Near East sending envoys or diplomats down to Egypt, in order to create relations with the pharaoh's court. The king described this in very self-congratulatory terms. Quote, the great ones, the Weru, come to him, their deliveries upon their backs, to request hetepu, or gifts, from his majesty. They come in quest of the breath of life. End quote. According to Amunhotep, foreign rulers of great power sent their embassies in order to seek his favour. The list is impressive for the kingdoms involved. Pharaoh claimed that the rulers of Hatti, Naharin, aka Mitanni, Ashur, or Assyria, and Babylon all sent emissaries to the Egyptian court. For Amunhotep, this was a supreme victory, an open acknowledgement that his power in the Near East was the greatest power, that his kingdom was the greatest kingdom. Did it happen, though? Was the king recalling a genuine series of embassies, or was he simply indulging in the kind of self-glorifying rhetoric that some pharaohs liked to do? It's hard to say. There are no records from Hatti or Babylon or Mitanni to back this claim up. Nor are there any tomb paintings from Amunhotep's officials to record an event. So we can't say for certain. In fact, there's a bit of a blank space for Amunhotep II in general on this point. We know that the king was engaged with foreign powers, at least in conflict, but the extent of their diplomacy remains unknown. So maybe it happened, 
Maybe it's a political fiction. Or maybe it's somewhere in between. Maybe one or two embassies visited, and the king simply inflated the numbers to make himself seem better. Who knows? Anyway, Amunhotep II was enjoying a peaceful reign now that his campaigning was done. In fact, after Ragnar year 10, official records from this reign dwindle away and become very minor instances. It seems as though after Ragnar year 10, there were very few major events to record. Amunhotep spent years 10 to 20 involved in domestic affairs. He arranged his government, built shrines at the major temples, and oversaw the construction of his tomb. He also looked after his family, a family that was growing very rapidly. The family of a pharaoh is always a difficult group to untangle. Records are often sketchy, or openly misleading, due to the pharaoh's insistence on not promoting one figure above another. But for the king Amunhotep II, we are unusually well informed. Amunhotep II has a unique family in the history of the 18th dynasty. Not only was it very large, more than 10 children all up, but it is surprisingly well represented in the archaeological record. We have stelae, rock inscriptions, statues, and tomb paintings to fill out the ranks of the family, and give us a sense of what was going on in the king's domestic apartments. For starters, the family was dominated by Amunhotep II's mother. This was the dowager queen Merit Re Hatshepsut. I just call her Merit Re. Meritre was the widow of Tutmos III. She was the mother of the current pharaoh, and a powerful player in the court. She was now about 52 years old, and remained a constant influence in the life of the royal household. She was the matriarch of the family, and she was also the closest thing to what we might call the Queen of Egypt at this time. Normally, a pharaoh would take many wives, and each of them would bear the title Hemet Nesut, or Wife of the King. Periodically, one of these would be elevated to the rank of Hemet Nesut Weret, or Great Wife of the King. This woman, the Great Wife, is what we generally call the Queen in the time of the particular ruler. But strangely, Amunhotep II never elevated any of his wives to this title. Instead, the role of great royal wife was held by Queen Meritre. For the 26 years of Amunhotep II's reign, the function of great royal wife or queen of Egypt was held by the pharaoh's mother. I'm sure you're wondering, was it an actual marriage? No, there's no evidence for that. What seems to be happening is something more political. The rise of Meritre to prominence happened to correspond with the time when King Tutmos III began to desecrate and obliterate the memory of Queen Hatshepsut. Having tolerated her power for 22 years, Tutmos eventually sought to remove that lady from the record. He did this to ensure the legitimacy of his son, and a secure succession to the throne. Well, that process coincided with the childhood of Amunhotep II, and the prominence of Queen Meritre. As king, Amunhotep II continued his father's policy. 
the monuments of Queen Hatshepsut were still being defaced and her name removed from visibility. It seems that the pharaoh was aware of the power and function that his great-aunt had held, and he may have sought to prevent that situation from repeating. In order to reduce the chances of that, Amunhotep may have restricted the influence of his wives to something more or less equal with one another. That way, none of them could reasonably hope to dominate the others, and institute any kind of regency for their own son. In other words, Amunhotep II was perhaps trying to prevent a Hatshepsut II. So it is highly possible that the prominence of Queen Meritre, his mother, had less to do with political marriage and more to do with keeping the royal household in control. With such a large family, including many sons, the king was probably concerned about instability when the time came for someone to succeed him. Thinking ahead, Amunhotep kept his mother in the supreme female position, and he kept his own wives, the actual mothers of his children, at a secondary tier of influence. It was just easier all round. So, that's the queen mother. Merit Rey sits at the top, dominating domestic affairs, while her son Amunhotep II rules the kingdom as pharaoh. Apart from these two, the rest of the family is a fascinating example of internal politics manifesting itself in strange ways. The family of this king was large by the standards of his day. All up, there are at least eight attested sons, and two or more daughters. And we know quite a lot about them. Too much, in fact. I could do a whole episode just on the evidence for these individuals. But there are a couple that we can focus down on specifically the princes. You see, Amunhotep II never formally appointed a successor. As a result, the sons were sitting in an awkward position. Which one of them was going to be future king? How were they to relate themselves? More importantly, should they start making plans? Under normal circumstances, a king would choose his eldest son, born to the most senior queen. If a child had been born before he came to the throne, that son was less prominent than one born afterwards. Likewise, if a child was born to a concubine, he was less prominent than a child born to a legitimate queen. Which narrowed down the choices somewhat, but still, Amunhotep had a difficult decision to make. Part of the problem was that the king never had a great royal wife, as I've said. He had wives, but none of these women were given the title of queen. So that complicated their ranks, it makes it hard to figure out who the most senior child was. We might have some good guesses, but no certainty. With that in mind, let's meet a couple of these princes. There are two important sons at this time. One was named Amunhotep, and one was named Tatmos. So yeah, it's one of those situations. I'm going to call these princes Amunhotep Sem, in reference to his main job, and Tutmos the Younger. That should keep them distinct from the grown-ups, and help us stay oriented. First up, Amunhotep Sem. Amunhotep Sem, sometimes called Amunhotep B, is our most likely candidate to be the heir to the throne. This prince was born somewhere around 1442 BCE, just after his father had become king. So he was of the blood royal, and his name reflects that. It's a name for a future king, for a man who might one day rule the Nile Valley. 
So Amunhotep Sem was a logical choice for the heir. But what do we know about him? Well, like his father, the king, this young prince was trained in the art of horse-rearing and caring. Among his titles was the rank Heritep Weret in Sesmet in Nesut, aka Great Master of the Horses of the King. This suggests that he spent time at the royal stables in Memphis, like his father, and it encourages us to view Amunhotep Sem as a favoured son of the pharaoh. After all, the tradition of charioteering and horse training was now a good hundred years old, and well embedded in the royal psychology. So with this kind of title, we have a good sense of how the king favoured one of his eldest sons. Amunhotep Sem's highest job was that of priest, specifically a Sem priest, hence my choice of name for this prince. A Sem priest was one of the foremost members of the temple hierarchy, and it was a title often held in conjunction with high priest. But Amunhotep Sem was not a high priest, just an ordinary member of the temple organisation. Well, I say ordinary, but really the Sem priest had a very specific and important function. Sem priests were usually involved in funeral processions. They led and orchestrated the proceedings, kind of the ancient equivalent to a celebrant, More particularly, the Sem priest stood in for the god Horus at funerals, with a counterpart, the Lector priest, representing Thoth. As one of the Sem priests, Amunhotep Sem would have stood in for the king at local funerals and rituals. He would be an active member in the religious life of his community, learning the intricacies of Egyptian mortuary culture day by day. This was an incredibly valuable skill. When he was king, Amunhotep Sem would need to conduct such rituals regularly. More importantly, he would need these skills in order to, one day, bury his own father in the proper style. So that's what we know about Amunhotep B, aka Amunhotep Sem, the young prince and possible heir to the pharaoh. Now, the second important son is Tutmos, aka Tutmos the Younger. Tutmos the Younger was born somewhere around 1434, regnal year 10 of his father. His mother was named Tia, and she was one of Amunhotep's wives, but not a queen. So again, Tutmos might be a candidate for the heir, but there is no certainty. What do we know about him? One thing we do know is that Tutmos the Younger was a sickly boy, who may have suffered from a condition like epilepsy. This is based on studies of his mummy, which shows that he was quite seriously ill for a large portion of his life. Also, a stealer from this prince records him having a kind of vision or dream that might, tentatively, be a record for a mild episode or seizure. That's an educated guess at most, but it's the best we have for the moment. Apart from that, not much is known about Tutmos the Younger but he was clearly important enough to be at least one of the potential heirs of the king, so I have to mention him, even though there's not a lot to say. So, Amunhotep Sem, probably one of the elder children, born when his father was king, was the most logical choice for the heir. There was also Tutmos the Younger, a sickly boy, who we do not know much about. For some reason, Amunhotep II found it was a difficult position choosing between these two princes. Faced with the choice, I would have thought it was fairly clear. 
there was an elder son who was already learning the tools of the trade, and there was a slightly younger son who didn't seem to have many titles, and who may have even been quite ill. What's the choice? Anyway, Amunhotep II never made a public declaration. And as we enter his last years, the question of who the king's future heir was must have begun to weigh upon many different minds. The actual choice of Amunhotep II's successor will have to wait for next episode. For now, it is time to explore the pharaoh's last days. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The year was now 1419 BCE. It was regnal year 25 of the king. Amunhotep II was 43 years old, and his life was drawing towards its close. At the age of 43, Amunhotep was still an imposing man. We know this because his mummy survives, in a good state of preservation, and it tells us a lot about his body in the last years of his life. Some of it is quite cool. To begin with, Amunhotep II was about 6 feet tall. Now this was huge for the time. By comparison, his own father Tutmos was only 5 feet tall, and the average Egyptian was probably between 5 and 5 and a half feet. So Amunhotep II was a giant. Add to that his broad shoulders, powerful limbs, and proven athleticism, and the king must have seemed the living image of divine power. Striding about the palace, Amunhotep was an immense, vigorous presence. Well, I say striding, but perhaps it was more limping. You see, Amunhotep was suffering from a disease which today we call peripheral arterial disease. This is where the arteries in different parts of your body become blocked by a buildup of calcification or plaque. This reduces the artery's ability to carry oxygen to the muscles, and it can be quite painful. The king was experiencing peripheral arterial disease in his legs, so he was probably limping towards the end of his life. He would have sat or reclined as much as possible, and likely been in pain whenever he tried to walk. For such an athletic and vigorous sportsman, this must have been a depressing turn of events. But Amunhotep's troubles did not stop there. The king was also balding. Amunhotep's mummy shows a clear bald patch at the back of his scalp, suggesting that in his later years he was suffering from male pattern baldness, or alopecia. Now I say suffering, because the Egyptians do seem to have been anxious about hair loss or hair greying. According to a medical papyrus discovered in 1901, but created around the time of Thutmose III, The list of medical ailments included the loss of hair, or the greying of one's colour. The papyrus lists a number of remedies for this, and these may have been what Amunhotep tried in order to resolve his issue. 
The first remedy goes thus: quote, "Remedy for making hair grow: one apennet worm made into a paste for rubbing in and put on the fire. After it has boiled, it shall be put into lard. Rub it into the bald patch quite frequently." End quote. It's no laser hair treatment, but it's the best they had. Another remedy suggested: take antelope tallow, snake grease, crocodile grease, and hippo grease. Mix together and rub in. Now that one just sounds awful, if for no other reason than it must have stunk. I mean, at least add some honey or something to all that snake and hippo grease. Come on. Anyway, I can imagine the pharaoh slathering hippo grease onto his head, hoping to slow down the creeping advance of alopecia. Yuck. On top of that, pardon the pun, his hair was also going grey. This would have required an alternate and, for my money, far more pleasant ointment. Quote, Remedy for preventing the greying of the hair: Take fruit from the wan tree, the jasper plant, and the hess fruit from the ima tree. Pulverize these finely, mix together, add one fingerful of lard. Make this into a lump and wrap it in fine cloth. Heat the mixture in a vessel on the fire until it boils. Then mix it with fat. Rub this into the hair. End quote. Now that one sounds much nicer. Fruit juice and plant material. Amenhotep's hair must have smelled lovely after that. As I was saying, Amenhotep II's mummy reveals a lot about the man from a physical and cultural point of view. We know that he was tall and powerful, but also balding and grey. What else can we tell? Well, in a rare moment of insight into the private lives of the pharaohs, we are able to say that Amenhotep II was also circumcised. Fortunately and unusually, the genitalia of the king survive intact on his mummy, and they reveal that he received the old nip and clip as part of his maturity. Now, not much is known about circumcision in ancient Egypt. It was clearly an important ritual done when a boy was becoming a man. But the popularity or extent of the practice is still unknown. Certainly, some of the pharaohs or members of the social elite did it, especially the priests. But other than that, it's still a little bit of a mystery. So it's fantastic to have some hard evidence for Amenhotep's genital health. A last fact about the king's body and life: in terms of physical well-being. It seems that Amenhotep II's later years were not ideal. Apart from his leg impairment, the king may also have been suffering from a skin condition. If you look at the king's mummy photo on the website, in particular his neck, you will see that Amenhotep's skin is covered in a number of lumpy nodules. There are quite a few of them, and could indicate a kind of dermatological illness. Curiously. These lumps or scabs appear as well on the mummies of Tutmos III and Tutmos II, Amenhotep's direct ancestors. So perhaps the king had a hereditary illness. It's possible, but we're not sure because the lumps could also be the result of a reaction between the mummy's skin and the fluids or salts used in the embalming process. If the king had sensitive skin or the embalming minerals were harsh. This might have caused a kind of rash to appear as the body was being prepared for burial, so it's an open question, and I'm not qualified to solve that one. If you know anything about dermatology, please check out the photo of the king's mummy on our website and let me know.
Maybe we can crowd-solve this. So, the last years of Amunhotep II's life were a difficult time for him. The once vigorous athlete was now suffering great pain in his legs. His skin may have been itchy or irritating, subject to illness. Finally, the king was going bald and grey. Truly, his early forties were a late-life crisis. Good news, the discomfort did not last too long. Bad news? That was because the king did not have much longer to live. Inevitably, the day came when the royal palace filled with the sound of mourning. In 1418 BCE, Amunhotep II gave up the ghost and passed away. It was the 26th year of his reign. He was 44 years old. Amunhotep left behind a large family with several prominent sons, and a host of influential women. We will look at that situation on the next episode. For now, let us wrap things up and explore the king's legacy, what he left behind for Egypt and for history. Around 1418 BCE, Amunhotep II passed away at the age of 44. His body was taken to an embalming workshop where priests would prepare it for burial. The mummification took, presumably, about 70 days, the traditional figure for the process of embalming, drying, and wrapping the corpse. Finally, the task was complete, and the funeral of the king took place. His family, including his successor, made their journey to the Valley of the Kings, and entered into the splendid chambers of the king's tomb. There, in an elegant sarcophagus, they laid the pharaoh to rest. And on that day, the reign of Akkeperure Amunhotep II came fully to its end. As we send the king to his eternal afterlife, it is time to reflect on his achievements. Suffice to say, this reign is a complicated one to judge. By ancient standards, Amunhotep II would be considered a mighty ruler. His reign was long, he was victorious in battle, and he was a pious servant of the gods. He fit the traditional mould of the pharaoh well, and successfully upheld a legacy that was now almost 1600 years old. By the standards of his day, Akkeperure Amunhotep II was an accomplished and respectable king. By modern standards, these 26 years are a bit murkier. Amunhotep performed many questionable deeds in his time. He was not a kind man. Although successful in war, his victories came at the costs of thousands displaced and taken captive. The king set new records for prisoner taking. He was also brutal, and in one horrid instance, he took an entire village, some 300 people, and burned them alive, just to make a point. I don't know about you, but that sits ill with me. Maybe it's an ends justify the means situation, but I just don't know. Looking at the domestic policies of Akkeperure, it is easy to see him as a pretty traditional and unremarkable ruler. His preference for promoting his friends is notable, but probably nothing too out of the ordinary. I suspect his reputation for cronyism comes more from an unusually rich record and the appearance of a specific title, but the king was probably not too outrageous in this sense. 
After all, there were plenty of high-ranking officials who were not his personal friends. So even though Amunhotep clearly was given to making his friends wealthy, he didn't go beyond what was reasonable. So I guess that's okay. Now if we think about his place in history, it's an interesting conundrum. Amunhotep II was clearly an important ruler in the 18th dynasty. He kept the state going on its trajectory, and he made many decisions that benefited his society. Had fate been kinder, we would probably think of Amunhotep as one of the more important rulers of the new kingdom. Sadly for him, his reign came after about 50 years of truly remarkable reigns, Tutmos III and Hatshepsut, and he came just before another 50 years of incredibly fascinating reigns, Amunhotep III and Akhenaten. So our boy Amunhotep II sort of got stuck between two periods of amazing activity and vitality in the royal household. No matter how competent or effective he was, the king rather gets lost in the historical ether. I have to give it to him, that sucks. It's one thing to be loved or hated, but to be simply forgotten? No one wants that. So Amunhotep does have my sympathy there. The legacy of Akkeperure Amunhotep II is complicated. He was an effective ruler and an influential one. But today, some of his deeds are uncomfortable blots on the historical record. In life, he was mighty and accomplished. In death, he is a slightly awkward memory. The doorway of Amunhotep II's tomb was sealed and a noteworthy reign came to its end. For good or ill, the life of Akkeperure Amunhotep was done. Whatever we think of him, we cannot lie. He was an important man. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.